You're listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. Let's read read this famous, famous, famous passage. Genesis 1-1, I'm going to read through verse 9. And it's it's a very famous passage, obviously, because it, it starts off the entire Bible. It's a really cool passage. Just think about it. If you want to, you could close your eyes and think about nothingness. That'd be cool, right? Do I hear music? I can't can't read the Bible if there's music. What is that? Sorry, just kidding. I can. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. He separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. The darkness he called night. There was evening. There was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated water from under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. There was evening. There was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let dry, dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and gathered the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Let's pray this morning. God, we worship you. God, you are awesome. You are amazing. You are our creator. You've created everything around us. And so right now in the Mill Sunday School, God, we just give you glory with our hearts, with our minds, with our souls. God, we just worship you. We glorify you, God. And our prayer is that we might know you better this morning by learning your word, learning these first words in the book of Genesis. You might enlighten us with your truth, with your spirit into our hearts and minds. And so, Jesus, we are just open to you, and we're open to what you directly have to say to us this morning. And everybody screamed, Amen. Amen. That's pretty good. All right, everyone, I have a few announcements for you. Are you okay with that? A few announcements. Um, number one announcement is, has to do with, uh, there's some things on your table. It looks like this. Do you see that? This has to do with something that's tomorrow. It's called the mill day at the park. Yo, yo, you want to tell us about it? Noon to four, Fox Run Park. I mean, who's doing anything tomorrow? It's Labor Day. I know you guys don't have plans. You're going to sit, sit around your house and just be bored. If you don't come to the mill day at the park, right? That's why you're coming. And so that I'll be there. Yo-Yo will be there. It's run by the mill interns. They'll do a great job with the food and the Frisbees and stuff like that. And then the other thing that I want to announce to you is a Salt Lake City trip, a mission trip. Yeah. Bruce, you want to come up and talk about it? Yeah. This is Bruce. Yeah. It's 75 bucks? Yeah, that's my bid. <laughs> He's playing Price is Right. I don't know what's going on. So that's Bruce. Uh, he's going on this trip. It's Salt Lake City. These are, this is an application for it. And usually, most of the times, Christians and Mormons get together, and sometimes it's just not nice. You just kind of go back and forth, and they kind of try, try to witness to you, and you try to witness to them, and it just gets mean. Anybody know what I'm talking about? It's, it just sometimes happens to be that way. And so this trip is going to Utah and just having dialogue, saying, I have these beliefs about the Bible. You have those beliefs about the Bible and God, and they're different. And so let's just talk about it. Let's work through it and communicate and dialogue. 
Sounds fun, right? Sounds like we're spo- what we're supposed to do as Christians, huh? Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, yeah, that sounds good. All right, ladies and gentlemen, let's get started with the book of Genesis. I am going to talk about the first four words of Genesis. In the beginning, God. Everybody say, in the beginning, God. Those are the first four words of our Bible. They're the first four words of the Pentateuch. That, that means the first five books of the Bible. It's the first words of the book of Genesis, and they're awesome words. In the beginning, God. And so this whole morning, I'm going to spend an hour, a whole hour. We'll get out at like 11.45. We'll all go to the main service together. A whole hour talking about four words. Does that sound like fun or not? Yes, it does. Yes, it sounds like a lot of fun. And if you're new to the Mill Sunday School, what we are is we're just like a bunch of nerds in here. We really like the Bible. We really like God. And we really like studying the Bible and studying God. And so just welcome to the Mill Sunday School. We, we provide free breakfast for those that, because it's good to get your belly full before you learn about God, right? It's just the way it's supposed to be. And so in the beginning, God, it's a good starting point. You know, when you're, when you're going to build something like a home, me and my wife, Erica, we're looking for houses right now. We're trying to buy a home. And uh, once, you, once you purchase a home, or actually once you make a bid for a home, you're given like 30 days to like inspect it and appraise it and make sure everything's right with the house before you actually close on the house and you're handed the keys. And so in that month, you, you're, there's an inspector that comes in and inspects the house to make sure it's good. And they tell us if it's good or not. And one of the main things that they inspect, of course, is the foundation to the house. It's the foundation. You can't really see it. It's under the house. It's the foundation. But you can see cracks maybe in it if it's bad. You can see water damage in it. You can see that the ho- if the house is like shifting, that's kind of bad. It's a bad foundation. And if the foundation to the house is bad, we don't want it, right? Because if the foundation is bad, what can you do to fix it? You have to bulldoze the house, redig it in order to fix the foundation. So it'd be a very bad purchase for me and my wife to buy a house that has a bad foundation, right? We don't want the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Do you know what? How many of you have seen the Leaning Tower of Pisa with your own eyes? A few of you. Wow, that's impressive. Uh, The Leaning Tower of Pisa is in Italy. It's in a city called Pisa. And it's famous because it tilts at like five degrees. It's leaning. It's the Leaning Tower of Pisa. And it was built over the course of 174 years. It was made out of stone. It took 174 years to make it. But what they didn't realize is that when they started, they didn't do a good enough job with the foundation because now it's leaning. And throughout history, it was started in the Middle Ages, around 11, uh, just in case you're wondering, 1173 AD is when they first laid the foundation to the Tower of Pisa, and then it started leaning. And as they finished it, it took 174 years to finish this tower out of stone. This is before, like, you know, diesel trucks and all that cool stuff that we have today that would help the cranes, that would help us build it. So they built it all by hand. And it took 174 years, and they built this awesome tower. But what they didn't realize is that the tower was sitting on a bad foundation. And so today, it's, it's, it's the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Kind of a joke. If you go and see it, there's a church standing right next to it, a church that's just as old, even taller than the, the, than, than the Tower of Pisa, and yet it's straight, it's, it's right up and down, just the way it should, because the church, this Gothic cathedral, was built correctly. Its foundation was laid correctly, and it stands on solid ground because its foundation was built right. Leaning Tower of Pisa, leaning five degrees. 
Stinks for the Leaning Tower of Pisa guys. Stinks for the guys that laid the foundation. Can you imagine working on it and cursing the guys that laid the foundation? I could. I used to work construction. (laughs) And so the starting point for the book of Genesis lays the foundation in a really, really, really good way. In the beginning, God. That's the first sentence of the entire Bible uh, that that we begin with. In fact, in the Greek, uh, the term Genesis is, it means the beginning. And that's where we get the name Genesis for this book of the Bible that, that starts us all off, the beginning. In systematic theology, does anyone know what systematic theology is? <laughs> Nobody? You've all seen the Leaning Tower of Pisa, but no one knows what systematic theology is. That's crazy, because I'm doing, um, I'm getting my doctorate, and I'm studying systematic theology. I just think it's really, really cool. And so systematic theology is giving order and science behind theology. Think about it this way, if you will. The science behind the study of God. Theology is just the study of God, Right? Study of God is pretty complicated stuff. Compare it to biology for a second. The study of bio, the study of life, right? What's more complex, the creator or the created? The creator would be the correct answer, of course. And so in, when we're studying biology, think about it. We have all these species names and the phyla and the order and all these different types and all these systems for studying a bird. You can't just call it a bird. You have to call it in the class aves and you have to call it the specific species and order name, right? Aren't you excited about the birds? <laughs> and so in the same way, when you're studying theology, God, the study of God is, is great, and it's big, and it's huge. I mean, it's God himself that we're studying. There's an order. There's a system to that. And so as we study theology, it's called systematic theology, a system of the way in which we study theology. And there's nine, um, I guess, nine topics within systematic theology, like Christology, the study of Christ, soteriology, the study of salvation, eschatology, the study of the end times, ecclesiology, the study of the church, uh, what else is there? Anthropology, the study of mankind. And, and then the first one is called prolegomena. It's, it's every systematic theological textbook begins with an introduction, a starting point. Think about it for a second. If you're going to study God himself, you're going to write a book about theology. Where do you begin? You're given a blank slate, blank pieces of paper to type or to write on, and you're going to start the study of God. Where do you begin? You have a blank slate. Tabula rasa is the, is the Latin term for a blank slate. Where do you begin with the study of God? Well, some people begin with truth. You, you say, well, here's truth has to exist because of this and this. And because there's truth, God has to be true. God is the truth giver. Some people begin, like Thomas Aquinas, he began with proving that God existed. Think about it. You're given a blank slate to write theology. And his beginning point was Let's prove the existence of God. And so, of course, there's five proofs for the existence of God that Thomas Aquinas wrote. And if you're interested in that, as as I am, come talk to me, and I'll I'll just talk your ear off with the five proofs of the existence of God. They're really sweet. Other, Other starting points, of course, systematic theologians say, okay, the Bible is true. Let's begin there. Let's start with that. And ladies and gentlemen, the book of the Bible has a starting point, and it's a starting point for everyone. In the beginning... God. That's the starting point of the Bible. Those four words that we're going to talk about. And this whole month, we're talking about um, Old Testament history. 
And so we're beginning with these four words that was where the Bible begins with. In the beginning, God. In 1968, there was uh, the Apollo 8. The Apollo 11, a few years after that, was the one that landed on the moon. And Lance Ar uh, Armstrong walked on the moon for the first time. And um, Apollo 8, we were in the space race with Russia in 1968. We sent a space shuttle in 1968 called the Apollo 8 mission, and it went around the moon for the first time and then all the way back and landed safely on the earth. Pretty sweet, don't you think? I think so. I mean, think about it. It hadn't been done before. And for the first time in history, three men were on the dark side of the moon. Three men were uh, in a space shuttle on the dark side of the moon. The earth was over here. The moon was here. They're orbiting around the moon. And the next morning, as, as the, the lunar morning, I guess, they come across and they see for the first time any human has ever seen the earth rise above the moon. For thousands and thousands of years, humans have looked up into the sky at night and seen the moon rise over the earth. But for the first time in history, three men on the dark side of the moon saw the earth rise over the moon. Can you picture it? Can you picture this beautiful sight? And they radio back because they're on the dark side of the moon. It just happened to be Christmas Eve. They radio back to the earth, and it was broadcasted live on TV. They had some TV cameras on the space shuttle. They recorded it live and, and then sent it back through radios. And it was the most watched, I guess, broadcast in history up until that time in 1968. And they, you know what they said when they got, when they heard, when the radio waves received back to the earth? You know what they said? They said, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. It's a true story. Isn't that cool? Well, I have a video clip. Do you like video clips? I know you do. It's a video clip of, uh, it's a mini-series. Some of you may have seen this a little while ago. It's called From the Earth to the Moon. And it's, uh, it, this particular episode is called 1968. And it's, it's about this, these three men. And it, it's pretty cool. Check it out. Pretty sweet, huh? Really, it's totally a true story, by the way. <clears throat> it's kind of it's it's amazing to think about that, that just being there in that time and seeing the Earth. I mean, no one had ever seen the Earth from outside of the Earth from the Moon before, and yet the first words said back over the airwaves were reading through the Book of Genesis. Pretty sweet, I think. Don't you think? Let's look at. Um, let's dive into the notes if we will, um, for just a second. We have to do something called exegesis and hermeneutics. Those are big words, right? Exegesis and hermeneutics. We, as, we, as we look at a book of the Bible, as we kind of, um, as we just dive in, it's always good to do a little bit of background knowledge as to who the book is written by and who the book is written to, the audience and the author. Did you know that the Bible's written for us? Everybody say amen. amen. It is. It's written for us. But in some ways, if you're, if you're to get technical with it for just a second, the Bible, this particular book, wasn't really written to us. Now get what I'm saying for just a second. If, I've, I've, I say this a lot because it's the reason why we do hermeneutics and exegesis. And if you're hearing it for the first time, it might throw you back a little bit and say, whoa, he's saying the Bible's not written to us? What's he saying? Here's what I'm saying. The Bible's written for us. But it's not addressed directly to us in New Life Church in 2007. 
It's addressed, I mean, I think this passage is, is one of the best ones, written, addressed to a humanity, really, in the beginning God. But it was written at a time, a long time ago. It was written about 1,500 B.C. That was the original audience of this book. And so some things, to understand where this book is, who it's written to, we kind of have to get, work ourselves into someone that's like a, 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 whatever they were doing back in 1,500 B.C. They were like playing with sheep and like uh, planting wheat and barley. I don't know what they were doing. They weren't playing with iPods, and they weren't sitting in Mill Sunday School eating sausage and eggs. They were, they were doing other things, and it was really written to, directly to them in the technical sense. But, it, ladies and gentlemen, it's written for us. And so we have to kind of do the exegesis. That's, that's getting to, to uh, the exegesis and hermeneutics are kind of the, the, the background study of the book of Genesis in order to understand it more better <laughs> for us today. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm, I'm saying that it's written for us, but it's not written directly. It's not addressed to us. A perfect example is if you turn to the New Testament and read like the book of Corinthians. It's addressed directly to the churches meeting in Corinth. It's not addressed to New Life Church 2007, right? And so that's just a really good example of that. It's almost like um, you kind of have to, to, if I'm going to tell some, some, somebody something, like let's just say cars, for instance. Anybody like cars in here? Fixing cars and stuff. Um, if someone calls me up and says, hey, Joe, my car won't start. And by the way, I, I'm kind of into cars. I fix my own car. I think it's kind of cool to work on cars a little bit. So I know a little bit about cars. So every once in a while, someone will call me, and they're stranded, and they'll say, Joe, my car won't start. What's going on? And I'll have to say, I'll have to think, okay, who's, who's calling me? If it's someone like Aaron Stern, for instance, Aaron Stern is a very handy dude. He knows a lot, a little bit, right, about cars. And so I knew that if Aaron Stern called me, and, and he was saying, Joe, my car won't start, I probably don't, I don't have to start with, okay, look at the gas gauge. Where's the gas gauge at? Uh, uh, is the key in the ignition, Aaron? <laughs> I would start with, okay, it's probably your alternator, your battery, your solenoid, or your fuel pump. When you turn over the engine, does it make a clicking sound, or does it turn over fast or slow? And he would tell me it's making clicking noise, and we'd go from there. And, and if maybe my wife was to call me up and say, hey, Joe, I'm stranded, my, my car won't start, I would start in a different place because, I mean, she knows a lot about a lot of different things, but she doesn't know that much about cars. No big deal. It's just not her thing, right? And so I would start with, okay, um, is, it, is it in park? It has to be in park in order to turn it. And, and, <laughs> and it wasn't. It was in drive, and so it wasn't turning because it was in drive, not in park. And so who you're talking to depends upon where you start. Do you see the point? I'm not trying to make fun of my wife. She's very, very smart. Just not when it comes to cars. I'm, I'm smart when it comes to cars. It's a perfect relationship. She's smart when it comes to music and making lasagna and stuff. I don't know anything about that. <laughs> and so uh, <laughs> who, who the audience is, 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 is important for us to look at because it's our starting point. It's who it's, who it's being written to, where you're going to start from. And the people that this book of the Bible was written directly to was people in the Bronze Age, about 1,500 years ago. People in the Middle East. If you're writing down a phrase, put down that the audience of the book of Genesis was Bronze Age people in the Middle East. Bronze Age people in the Middle East. And there's big categories for separating the different ages. There's the Stone Age, the Bronze Age, and then the Steel Age. They, had, they weren't even yet in the Steel Age. They were in the Bronze Age. Um, 
characterized by making copper and tin into these knives and pots and bowls and cool stuff like that. They didn't even have steel yet. It's 1,500 BC. Is that a long time ago? I think so. It's a really long time ago. I mean, like yesterday was a really long time ago to me. And so it was a really long time ago. There's this book out that won a Pulitzer, Surpri- Pulitzer Prize in uh, <laughs> 1998. It's called Guns, Germs, and Steel. Have you heard of this book? It's a revolutionary, revolutionary in the sense that it's this brand new idea of answering the question, why do some civilizations do, do, do so much better than other civilizations in terms of like advances and medical advances and cultural advances? And so take ourselves, for instance, 2007, USA of A. We, uh, our life expectancy is, is most of us will, might see 100 years of age. We have iPods. We have MySpace and the Internet. I mean, we don't even think about running water, electricity, gas to turn on our stoves, our heater house. I mean, we just don't even think about those things. They're just like, oh, yeah, we got all those stuff. And if you didn't, you would, you would probably think about it a lot. But if you go today to, into the depths of Papua New Guinea, for instance, there's people there that have never seen an iPod. Can you imagine? There's people there that don't have running water, that don't have electricity, that have dirt floors. And you have to think to yourself, why would our Western civilization, our culture, do, I mean, as far as advances, do so much better than this Papua New Guinean tropical island culture? And this guy, his name is Jared Diamond, and I say all this to say kind of where uh, the people of the Bible were at in Genesis. So hold on with me as I, as I go through this little journey. Um, if you go to Papua New Guinea, let's say way back in the day, they, they are planting, uh, the, the things that are native to that island are to eat for humans would be, the main staple are like these potato yam things. You know how long it takes to grow a potato yam thing? It takes a long time. It takes a lot. You can't just plant seeds of a, of a potato yam thing. You have to like cut it in the forest and plant another plant and then harvest the roots without hurting the plant. It takes a whole bunch of time in order to harvest this plant. Um, and they don't have, you know, there's donkeys, horses, uh, cattle, uh, big animals are not, uh, the biggest animal other than a human is like a little pig. And so you can't plow a field with a little pig. I mean, you could probably try, but it's just not going to work out. And so the people, the people of ancient Papua New Guinean tropical culture had to spend so much time just making food. Whereas the people living in the Mediterranean, people living in the Middle East, where the, where the Bible stories are going to take place, you know what they had? They had something called wheat and barley, which we make into flours and cakes and cookies and dough and all this really good stuff right? And it's easy to harvest. You just plant the seeds. It grows up in a couple months. You harvest it. You have a whole bunch. You could put it in a bag and save it for years. You could save wheat in a bag for like five years. How long does a potato last in your cupboard? Maybe a month until it starts growing its own little other potato things. (laughs) And so it doesn't last very long. And so as you and the, the big animals that are native to the, the, to the Middle East and to the Mediterranean are horses, cows, donkeys, big animals that can be domesticated and pull plows and sheep and, and goats that you can milk and use for meat and uh, make coats out of, like, wool. I mean, it's just, good. it's just a good area to live in as far as developing civilization because it only takes one dude to go out and plow a whole bunch of fields, grow enough wheat for the entire village. And so everybody else in the village can make coats or learn how to make houses or learn how to better 
the water supply. And so this guy named Jared Diamond, who wrote the book Guns, Germs, and Steel, promotes this idea that says the reason why some cultures do so much better is because the very land itself, the very things that are native to that culture. And so get your mind in this perspective of, okay, I'm someone that's in 1,500 B.C., someone that's in the Bronze Age, someone that's in the culture of, okay, we got to plant food, we got to go get water, we got to take care of these sheep in order that we might have milk and clothing as far as wool and stuff like that. That's the culture in which the book of Genesis is written to. Do you got it in your mind? So forget about the iPods, forget about running water, forget about uh, floors that aren't dirt. That's the audience of the book of Genesis. And spiritually, religiously, Almost all of the religions in the surrounding culture of the Mediterranean and the Middle East, you know what they were worshiping? They were worshiping the creation. They didn't have explanations for lightning or why some women gave birth to kids and other women were barren. They didn't have explanations as to why famine or drought came. And so they made up reasons, spiritual reasons. They said, oh, there's a God of fertility. There's a God of lightning. There's a God of famine. And so we have to appease these gods, pray to them, make little idols and things like that. Just make it all up. And so imagine yourself in this culture, taking care of sheep, uh, planting wheat and barley, believing that, oh, if lightning goes off, the, the gods must be mad. And then that's the culture in which the author of this book wrote the Genesis. In the beginning, God. Not in the beginning, gods were warring and one got thrown down and became humans. In the beginning, God, one God, monotheism, is so much different than the surrounding cultures at the time when the book of Genesis was written. Do you kind of got that in your mind? As we go through this month of Old Testament history, that'll be very important. The thought that other surrounding tribes were not at all monotheists. They believed in lots of gods. They had all these little uh, golden idols and figurines. I mean, imagine it for a second. You're Moses, right? Uh, later on in the book of Exodus, there's the story of Moses going, ascending Mount Sinai, talking to God, writing down on tablets the, the, the Ten Commandments, comes back down. What's everybody doing? They have made a golden cow, and they're bowing down and worshiping it. What are you doing? In the beginning, God, not In the beginning, gods were warring, and so we need to dig up gold and make little figurines and worship them. No, in the beginning, God. And so let's look at at who the author of the book of Genesis is. Do you know who the author is? Yeah, Moses. Traditionally, throughout history, uh, throughout Jewish history, throughout early church history, Moses, everybody just said, Moses was the writer of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, were written by Moses. And no one ever even questioned that until about the 1700s. The Enlightenment and the Renaissance, people started for the first time looking at the Bible critically. And I say critically not to say that they were like critical of the Bible and saying, oh, this is just, uh, just all bad. It's all, I'm so critical of the Bible. They were looking at it like an investigator with exegesis and hermeneutics. And they looked at it, and they saw that at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 34, 5 through 8, if you wanted to look there, you would see that the death of Moses is written about. And so you think to yourself, if Moses wrote this, there's only a couple explanations as to how his death got in there. One, he predicted and wrote about his own death. Or number two, someone else wrote maybe at least that part 
of the end of Deuteronomy. And traditionally, that's been known as Joshua. Joshua wrote the last little bit of the book of Deuteronomy explaining Moses' death, and then Joshua wrote the book of Joshua. But then at the end of the book of Joshua, Joshua's death is written about. And then so who wrote the book? Who wrote that little end of that, that little bit? We're not really sure. So this theory came up called the J-E-D-P theory. The J-E-D-P. Raise your hand if you've just heard of it. You have no idea what it is, but you've heard of it. The J-E-D-P theory. Um, I, would go, I would spend a lot of time over it, but sit in, the, in like the last 20 years, this theory has been thrown in the trash <laughs> because it's not that good of a theory. But just in case you're wondering, the theory said that four different people wrote the books of the Pentateuch. There was the J, the, the person that used the term Yahweh a lot as God. There was E, the person that used the, the term uh, Elohim a lot. That's another name for God, by the way. Uh, the, De- the D stands for De- Deuteronomist, and they were the one that wrote the most of the book of Deuteronomy. They used the term Yahweh Elohenu. And then the P stands for a priest, priestly uh, source of the Pentateuch that says that there was a priest that wrote most of the details about being a priest, and they, they used the term Elohim for God, the name for God. And, th- and then so throughout, uh, like in the 1800s and 1900s, this theory was developed that said that, oh, these four different people must have wrote the, book of the, the books of the Pentateuch and uh, kind of just wrote different parts and it was all kind of put together later on. But since that theory, that theory was kind of thrown out because this guy quotes it and says, asserts that these assumptions are illogical, contradictory, and offer, offer no real explanation as to why there would be separate sources and that they would all avoid duplication. And so that theory, the JEDP theory, if you were in uh, Bible school like five years ago, ten years ago, you might have learned the JEDP theory of who wrote the books of the Pentateuch. But that theory has been set aside, and now it's almost like it's come full circle. Now the best theory that we have is that Moses (laughs) was the author slash compiler of the first five books of the Bible. And I really like that idea, that Moses wrote most of it, that he was, I mean, he had direct communication with God himself. God directly told him the Ten Commandments, the books of the law, and then um, possibly the stories of Abraham, Noah, the stories of creation were passed along through oral tradition, and Moses got, they were just common knowledge, and Moses compiled and authorized, authored, I guess, the first five books of the Bible. That's, it's, so it's kind of come complete circle, back to Moses, which is, I like that, right? I mean, who doesn't like Moses? Moses, you know, he wrote, he wrote the first five books of the Bible. I like that theory a lot. And just in case you're thinking, well, how can the oral tradition be passed on? Well, the oral tradition and the Jewish, uh, amongst the Jewish people is extremely important. Did you know that this part of the book of the Bible, called the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, this much right here, is that a lot? Yeah, that's a lot. If you go to read it, it's going to take you a couple days to get through it. This amount of scripture was memorized by every Jewish boy by the time he was 11 years old. At school, they didn't learn reading, writing, arithmetic, math, science, stuff like that. They learned memorization of the Torah, memorization of the Pentateuch, these first five books of the Bible, memorized. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and, uh, you know, the rest of the Pentateuch. The rest, the entire five books of the Bible. And so they memorized it. That's how the oral tradition was passed on in this ancient culture. A very good way of doing it, by the way. And so, and so don't let that taunt you. All right. Um, 
Let's talk about uh, the, uh, so we talked about the audience, we talked about the author. Let's talk about creation for just a second, shall we? The creation that God talks about. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then it says, now the earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And I had a person ask me um, uh, not too long ago, what do you think God was doing uh, before he created? If God has always been and always has been, he's just been God since, you know, the beginning of the beginning. Um, what, was, what, was, what was he doing until he created the earth? And I had someone explain this to me once. You know what he said? It was, it was a guy I met in California. He, was, uh, he, he went to Fuller Seminary, where I went to. And he, uh, in California, there's a lot of surfers. Anybody a surfer? Dudes or dudettes? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Um, I, I lived in California for one full year. I went to seminary, got my master's degree. I had two goals when I moved to California. One, get good grades, be a good seminary student. Number two, be a surfer, dude. And so I went with the goal of I'm going to learn how to surf. I'm going to buy a surfboard. I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm going to buy a wetsuit. I'm going to buy a boogie board. I'm going to read everything I can. I'm going to meet everybody I can and to learn how to surf. And so I, learned, I met these dudes that were going to seminary with me, getting their master's degrees as well. And every weekend on Saturday, they'd go surfing all day. At night, as soon as the sun went down, they'd make a big fire, cook some hamburgers and hot dogs, and then do some worship and do some sharing. I mean, it was sweet. Don't you think that would be sweet every single Saturday? And that's what I did. And this one Saturday, uh, one of the guys named Joel was just this intense surfer dude. That's what he was all about, was just surfing dude. And so he started sharing his idea that God, before he created the world, was hovering over the waters. That God himself was a surfer dude. (laughs) And I have yet to hear anybody explain anything better than what was God doing before he created the world? He was surfing the face of the deep. He was surfing. If you could come up with a better idea from this, from this scripture, I will, I will believe you. But that's what God was doing. <laughs> he was surfing. And, the, and his whole Bible study was like, that, that's why it's so good when we surf, because we're worshiping God we're not worshiping the creation, but we're hovering over the waters like God once did. And it was, it was a weird Bible study, but, uh, but I have yet to hear a better, better example, a better explanation of what God was doing before he created the heavens, uh, before he created the earth. And so uh, let's talk about creation really quick. We've got about 15 more minutes. And oftentimes um, the, we'll talk about creation as Christians We'll jump right into this whole hot topic kind of thing of evolution versus creation, right? We'll jump right there and say, oh, yeah, we got to beat up those evolutionists and, and kill them because they're bad. And we got to, you know what I mean? It's the whole debate between creation, creationists, and evolutionists. But I'm not going to get into that today. And even amongst Christians, did you know that lots of Christians, probably most of you in here are, would, would be called, uh, what's the exact term? Young earth creation theistic creationists. That, that means that you believe that the literal uh, first passages of Genesis are literal. Seven days God took to create the world. The earth is very young. But even within Christianity, possibly some of you in this room have this idea that, is, uh, that says that God created that one day is of a thousand years to the Lord. Have you heard people talk about that before? 
Christian, legitimately loving God, worshiping God, look at the book of Genesis and say, maybe it's not 100% literal. Maybe there's, there's this verse that says one, year is a, is a, one day is a thousand years to the Lord. Maybe, there, maybe the, there was, it's called progressive creationism. Have you at least heard of that theory before? Or the gap theory, that there was gaps between the first and second verse of the Bible, that uh, God, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and then they were created for millions of years, and then God started doing stuff. Have you heard of those theories before? They're fun to talk about. They really are. I have fun talking about them. If you want to talk about it, I'll talk your ear off about just creation versus evolution. Because my um, undergraduate degree, my bachelor degree was in biology. And I just like biology and, and learning about that stuff and thinking about how God created uh, and the specifics of how. But let's just let's take all that, those ideas of creationism, evolutionism, put them in a, in, in a shelf and let's just set them down here for a second. And let's talk about something that's underneath the shelf for just a second. Just the idea of creation itself. I'm going to write on the, on, the, on the whiteboard for just a second. In this world, there are two things, and two things only. Can you think of what those two things are? There's only two things. There's, there's one, one stuff and another stuff. And believe me, if I knew the technical term for, instead of using the word stuff, I would use it. But it's just stuff to me. So there's two stuff. One stuff is God, and I don't mean any disrespect by calling it stuff. It's just, I don't know any other term. It's stuff. It's, there's two stuffs in the earth, anywhere, in creation, in all of existence, there's one stuff. And that stuff is called God. And the other stuff is His creation. His stuff. <laughs> That's what I should have put. His creation. There's only two things in all of existence. Think about it for just a second. And you're like, well, what about Satan? Did you know that Satan, which one would he fall into? His creation. Did you know that, that God and Satan are not warring with each other over the powers of the earth? Did you know that Satan himself is a creation of God? That, that God and Satan aren't like brothers, uh, the warring over like who does good things, who does bad things? No, there's God, and he created Satan. And the, and the Bible says that he created him as an angel, and then the, he turned bad and, and fell to the earth. And that's where Satan came from. Where would Jesus fall? Yeah, it would fall in this one. Because in the beginning was the Word, the, the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. You know that verse in the book of John? It says that the Word was Jesus. He was God. Jesus says, before Abraham, I was. I am the Father. I and the Father am one. And so Jesus would be right in here. And the only other thing in here is the, the Spirit, the Trinity. The Trinity, the triune God is one stuff. And all other stuff is His creation. So what about the laws of physics, like the laws of gravity. Where's that fall? His creation. What about, uh, it's weird to think about, but what about the existence of time itself? His creation. Yeah, there wasn't like God and then all these rules of, 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 of like laws of physics and time and stuff like that with God. There was God since the beginning, God. And then everything else falls into his creation. There's two stuffs. Think about that for just a second. Where does love fall? Yeah, it's part of his good, perfect, holy creation. And so God created ex nihilo. Have you heard that term before? 
I'm going to put it right here. EX in nihilo. Ex nihilo. That is a Latin phrase. Any Latin scholars that could tell me what it means? My wife knows. Out of nothing. Isn't that cool? Isn't she smart? It means out of nothing. That God created out of nothing. And so you might say to yourself, well, when God created man, didn't he form the man out of dust? Wasn't he just forming it out of what already was? No. Where did he get the dust from? He brought it from home. He made it. It was his. It was his dust. He formed it because he made it. And so there wasn't like God and this, this stuff, and then God just kind of worked this stuff into creation. No, he made the stuff. And then he formed it into the seas and into the land and into humans and into donkeys and goats and cool stuff like that. That, that God created ex nihilo, out of nothing. And so there's just two stuffs, God and his creation. And that's where the book of Genesis starts. In the beginning, God. There's nothing else in the beginning but God himself. And out of himself, he created the heavens and the earth. And it was formless and void. And then, so do you see it? Do you see how different that is than some of the creation stories at the time of 1500 BC? Where it's like, oh, there was a bunch of gods and they were warring. And one got mad, so he threw another god down to the earth. And that god had other children. And then the, the children became humans. I mean, do you see how different that is than the other ancient stories of creation at the time of the Bronze Age? Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, the Bible's different. And so we worship a, a monotheistic God unlike any other God on this, on, that's ever been ex explained because he has personality. You know that we don't worship this little golden figurine and we don't bow down to it. No, we worship a God that is above all things, who all things come from God. That's so awesome. That's so unlike any other pagan religion at the time when this book was written. I have, um, I'll, I'll close with this, a passage from this book. It's called A Brief History of Time. Anybody ever read this? It's by Stephen Hawking. Wow, a couple of really cool nerds. Um, it's it's uh, Stephen Hawking it is a dude. You might know him as, as the guy that's in a wheelchair. I believe he has some sort of paralysis disease. Uh, he can't talk or move, and yet he is an amazing mind. He, he's like uh, just the dude when it comes to dudes, when it comes to who knows everything about physics and physical laws and stuff like this. And so if you read this book, it's titled A Brief History of Time, From the Big Bang to the Black Holes. He writes about um, the Big Bang and how really the whole book is about there is no need for God because we could explain stuff. We could explain that there was matter and that this matter came from an explosion from the Big Bang and, this, and that the, the time itself came from this big blowing up of, of, of particles and the particles became matter and the particles in motion because time is relative started time. And really the whole book almost just proves away the existence of God. And as I was reading it, I was like, oh, come on, this is just silliness because there has to be a God. There just has to be. And I'm reading it. I had to read it for a class when I was in college, and I was kind of, kind of getting a little, I mean, it's a great book. It's, it's really written to like the average person that wants to know more about physics and stuff. And so it's a really good book. But as I was reading it, I'm just thinking, there's got to be, there's got to be something behind the particles, right? I mean, who made the particles that blew up, right? And, and then Stephen Hawking has explanations for how those particles got there. And it doesn't have anything to do with God. And yet the last 
chapter, the last sentence of this book that I'm going to read for you, the last paragraph says this. He's talking about a theory as to explain how the, par- the things beyond the, the particles made the, these particles, how they blew up. And it says, however, if we do discover a complete theory of how the, the everything lines up, it should in time be understandable in a broad principle by everyone, not just a few scientists. Then we shall all, philosophers, scientists, and just ordinary people, be, be able to take part in the discussion of the question of why it is that we and the universe exist. If we find the answer to that, that would be the ultimate triumph of human reason. For then we would know the mind of God. Do you see it? This whole book explaining everything about this Big Bang and these particles, how they just came from something else. The last sentence of the book, I mean, I almost got, I almost threw it in the trash. I was like, what the heck? Why did I read this? Why couldn't he just say, in the beginning, God? Because, you know, you're just reading this whole thing, and it's all about these particles and how they came from other particles and how there is no existence of God because it could all be explained away. And yet the very end, the very last line of the book says, if we understood it all, we would understand the mind of God, the mind of the Creator. In the beginning, God. Isn't that the perfect beginning place to the Word of God? Isn't that the perfect beginning place to this book that we call the Bible? I think so. And so all this month, Old Testament history, but today we had to begin somewhere. We began with, in the beginning, God. Let's pray. God, we just worship you as the great creator. We give you glory right now for our own creation. We, d- we just look to you, God, and thank you. We praise you for this earth. We praise you for everything on it, the things that are good on this earth. God, we even praise you for the things that look disastrous because we know Jesus that you are in control that things work out for your glory for your good even though bad things happen on this earth and God we also know that you are a God that has not left us that you are a God that even suffers with us as we are suffering that we can cry on your shoulder because you are a God that loves us and cares for us and has created us in a good way and so God we just praise you we thank you And we want more and more and more of your truth and of your knowledge. We worship you and praise you. And everybody said, amen. All right, everybody, meet some people around you before you leave. Go to section 11. Go to the barbecue tomorrow. And I'll see you next week.